Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Have you ever felt like you've tried everything to heal from the pain of sexual abuse and yet nothing seems to really be helping? Well, one of the reasons why most people struggle to break free from the pain of past child abuse is because the techniques out there are positioned as a one-size-fits-all answer. What I want you to know is that there are actually three distinct phases on the path to recovery. And I'd love to share with you about these phases, what issues you must resolve to move to the next phase, and what kinds of support you'll need in order to move forward as quickly and completely as possible. The road to recovery is much easier when you know what stage you're in and what to do next. So don't hesitate. Go to www.rachelgrantcoaching.com slash checklist and get your nine-page guide today. Now, on to our show. Welcome, everyone, to Beyond Surviving, the safe space for survivors of childhood sexual abuse to receive support, resources, and share their stories. Beyond Surviving is about freedom, healing, connection, and even laughter and fun. Most importantly, it's about letting go of the pain of abuse and finally moving on. I'm Rachel Grant. For those of you who don't yet know me, I've been a sexual abuse recovery coach since 2007 and am the author of Beyond Surviving, the final stage of recovery from sexual abuse. I work with survivors who are sick and tired of feeling broken and unfixable, and I help them move on with their lives. You can learn more about me and the Beyond Surviving program at rachelgrantcoaching.com. Now, today is a very special guest. We have here with us Latia Parker, who is a powerhouse of a woman, an amazing, amazing healer, and just an activist, an advocate. 
and she is going to be sharing with us some tips on how to acknowledge that we were victims of abuse so that we can not be defined by the abuse but notice that we need that help and, and move forward and also we're going to be taking a close look at shame and the impact of that and, and how we move forward from the negative beliefs that cause so many of us to feel shame. So I want to tell you a little bit about Latia. She's a young woman who founded SOAR, Speak Out Against Rape, in 2002 after experiencing repeated violations and abuse. She overcame drugs and other addictions, authored a book on the subject titled Where Can I Take My Shame, and began to do conferences to help other women cope with the fallout from their past. She's worked in social services for several years before taking a job as assistant to the executive director of the Bridge Crossing Jubilee. She also works part-time as a graphic and web designer, and she's also the founder of Vow Ministries, Victory of Women, and a co-founder of Family Affairs Center and Voices of Zion Publishing Company. She hosts annual women's conferences, co-hosts the radio talk show God's Voice, and is currently releasing her second book, Rebuilding the Ruins. She obtained her degree in 2000 in computer information systems and is currently studying to receive her master's in human services. So she's a busy lady. We're lucky we got her on the call tonight. <laughs> so, Latia, welcome. So glad to have you here. I'm glad to be here, Rachel. So you have been doing so much in the world of recovery, you know, starting a foundation in 2002, writing your own story and sharing and continuing to advocate for women for so many years and survivors of abuse. And so I'd like to hear just a little bit more about your your journey um, and your story. And in particular, we're focusing on shame tonight, maybe sharing a bit about how that was you know, really reinforced even through um, your loved ones or community? Well, for me, um, I was a victim of sexual abuse, and um, it started uh, maybe when I was three or four with an uncle. And I remember knowing um, something wasn't right, but I couldn't particularly put my hand on the feeling that I had when I was around him. And so that went on maybe until I was about five years old, and it kind of came out because the last time he molested me, he actually went all the way and he did damage to me. So it kind of came out and um, throughout the family. And for me, um, I remember being so young, I just remember a lot of commotion. I remember my mother and father arguing, and why did you leave her with him? And I remember everybody was angry and everybody was so upset. And, and uh, within maybe two weeks, my mother left my father. And um, she took us and she packed us up and she moved us to Ohio. And I remember thinking, you know, I was the cause of that, you know, because of what came out about me. Because nobody was really talking to me to tell me, hey, you know, this wasn't your fault. You know, so all I remember was, you know, I broke my mother and my father up. You know, I made my mom so upset I just tore up the family. So I was carrying this as a little child. I was I was feeling like that. And I remember looking at my mom and, 
even though, you know, my, I had a baby brother at the time and an older sister, and I remember looking at, you know, how my mother would interact with them. But, you know, sometimes when she would look at me, there was a different look. And, you know, as I got older, you know, I understand now that sometimes when people haven't dealt with their own situation that, you know, it was hard for her to cope with what had happened to me. So, but I could see that look in her eyes. So that was like, I remember always kind of feeling ashamed. And like when I looked at my mother or I looked at other people, I didn't really want to make eye contact because I didn't like that look that I saw in her eyes. So I remember that was kind of um, my first that I remember experiencing feeling the shame. And and so I, um, I we 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 moved on. Of course, my father he came to Ohio. He was he was also uh, um, he physically abused my mother um, many times. And um, he followed us to Ohio. He stalked her. And I remember there were times she'd get off work, and you know he would jump on her, and we would be running, you know, trying to go get to my grandmother's house. So it was just. You know, he was also an alcoholic, so the neighborhood and the community, everybody was talking about him because he was an alcoholic. So I remember us really being embarrassed for people to know that he was our father. <laughs> so um, I just, um, so it was, so he was just not a person that you could talk to about what happened. And, you know, my mother, she wasn't very open to talking about what happened. And clearly so in our family, in our culture, you know, some things to discuss for a child is off limits, and that was one of them. That's just one thing you just didn't talk about. You didn't, you didn't, you know, you would actually get spanked for even saying the word rape. So it was something that I never took an interest to learn about or try to find out about. So really that left me at a place of vulnerability because I started to go through a lot of things and I didn't know what was happening to me. Mm-hmm. My second encounter happened when I was at middle school and um, I was maybe, I was 12, and there was a friend, she was 15, and she wanted to hang out with me, and I thought that was kind of cool. And, um, well, I'm sorry, prior to that, there was a teacher. I, I started to get a um, a teacher would start to hold me after school, hold me after class, and he would say things like, "You're really smart, and you know, I just I want to take you under my wing because you're so smart," and et cetera, et cetera. And then he probably did that maybe three times before the third time his hand went down my shirt, and I remember just standing there. I was stunned. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know. I mean, I just remember feeling so ashamed. I was so ashamed that it was like I was just frozen. I let him just continue to talk to me and feel down my shirt, and I remember just blanking out saying, okay, God, please just let this be over, and I'm never coming back in his class again. And so after he got finished feeling on me and he started talking like, you know, I would like for you to come and leave, you know, trying to get me to leave school with him or whatever. I did not, but when I left that class, I said, okay, I'm not going back to that class. And not only did I not go back to his class, any male teacher that I had, I didn't go to any of their classes. So we were like in seventh grade and we had different classes, but I decided I was not going to anybody else's classes that was a male. And so 
And that kind of took me. Yeah. <laughs> Understandable, but what an impact, yeah. Oh, and that kind of put me to, um, you know, when you're skipping class, I didn't really have anywhere to go, so you just kind of had to walk the hall. Right. And that's kind of how I met the girl, Tiffany. And um, when I met her, um, she was 15, and she had already, I guess, failed. And she was kind of hanging out in the halls, and I thought it was cool that she was older than me and she wanted to hang out with me. So eventually it just started with us skipping, you know, those classes, which we found out later on that I was not the only one this teacher had abused multiple girls at the school. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> and so a lot of us was hanging out in that hallway, didn't want to go to his class, but nobody was talking to the other, mm-hmm. and we didn't even know that, you know, this all of us were out here pretty much because we didn't want to go to his class. Wow. <laughs> and so <laughs> and so I um and so I she one day she finally talked me into leaving school to go to the store. So I said, Well okay, well we going we just going to the store and coming right back and she was like, Well yes, because you know I was didn't want to get in trouble. And so we left school, we went to the store and we was coming back on the way back from the store. We was approached by some men in the car um, that she knew. And um, so from the conversation, I just kind of thought that, you know, I knew she knew them and, you know, they were fine as far as I thought. But I didn't know what all she was saying to them or what they said to her. So the next thing I know, she said, well, get in the car. We're just going to turn a couple of corners. And so now I'm really afraid because I'm like, if my mother catch me, I'm going to be in a lot of trouble. <laughs> and so, but, you know, I went ahead, I got in the car, and I remember them um, passing us, um, you know, trying to force us to drink stuff because I remember saying, well, no, because at this time I'm not really aware um, about getting drunk or whatever. But, you know, my first problem was I don't like to drink after people, so they was trying to pass me a bottle to drink after other people, and I was saying, no, that's disgusting. Mm-hmm. And so they were, um, you know, so then it got kind of where they were kind of forcing the bottle to my lips, and, you know, me only being 12 at the time, so I, and being very intimidated, so I'm saying, okay, okay, so I'm drinking it, and they just kept pushing it up to my lips, like, turn it up, you know. And the next thing I know, we end up at this house. And to make a long story short, I was gang raped at this house. And I, um, they took us back to the school and threw me out the car, and the principal found me in the ditch. And it was very open. It wasn't just the principal. It was a lot of people that saw me. And my school was in my community. So they had to call the paramedics because I also had alcohol poisoning. So they had to call the paramedics, and it was just an open thing that everybody was talking about, and only everybody didn't know the truth, so they just assumed, and they added to that. And so when I woke up, I was at the hospital. The police was asking me questions. But once again, nobody was really explaining to me what had happened. So I don't even know at this point what the word rape means. 
So they so I have police and cameras in my face and you know, and I, I just see my mother over here and she's just red and I can tell she's trying to hold it together and I'm thinking, I've done it again. I just embarrassed my mother. I just hurt my mother. Here I go again with the same thing, like here I you know, and so from there, I would um, come out in the community. I started to go through a depression. I would come out in the community, and people would point and say, that's the girl right there, or that's the girl who got the train ran on her. You know, people would say things like that. And, you know, I couldn't go back to school because the, all of the kids at school was talking, and then my family was talking. They were talking like I wasn't even there. They was just telling the story on you know to people on the phone like I wasn't even sitting there, and so I um I kind of shut down. Like the more they did that, the more I shut down. I stopped wanting. I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to discuss it, and I just thought I had just embarrassed my whole family. Like you know, because nobody was really talking to me, saying, "Hey, you know, this is this is something that's called a crime." <laughs> So when I when the when the police picked me up and they took me down to the station to identify the men to see if I saw them in the um you know, I looked through a, a book of mug shots and sure enough, you know, they were there. <laughs> and the young lady who I was hanging with, who I went out with, who I feel set me up, um, she basically told them my phone number, she gave them my address and um she they started to threaten me. And basically saying if I told the police or if I went to court or if I testified that they would do a drive-by on the house, they were saying things like that. Now, my mother wasn't afraid, but I was. Mm -hmm. And so I was just tormented every night until my mother got home from work because I was so scared they would do something to my mother. And I started begging my mom, saying, Mom, please, I mean, I I just need to get away. I need to get away. And... She just wasn't really, you know, she was just really like, you know, we're not going to let them get away with this, you know. But to me, I was just afraid. Like, I didn't want anybody to shoot up our house and <laughs> and stuff like that. And so, at the uh, on the other hand, she was letting me stay with my grandmother because they, they were keeping me out of school for a while. She was letting me stay with my grandmother. And my grandmother, she's old generation, you know, whatever comes up, comes off. Mm-hmm. And she basically would just talk about it like I wasn't there. And I just, one day she did it in the car in front of everybody in the car. And I think I was just so fed up that I just jumped out the car and I started running. And I ran away for about five days at 12. Oh my gosh. So, and I stayed on the street for about five days because, I mean, I just thought that I was just an embarrassment. It was just too embarrassing. And when the police found me, um, they put me in a, a, a um, like a little institution for for preteens and teens. Out my floor, I think nobody was over fifteen at the time. And um, I didn't really talk to them, so I didn't really open up because, like I said, at this time, I'm still not aware that what has happened is um, a crime. <laughs> so all this time, I'm just thinking it's me. It's all me. <laughs> and I just, um, when I got out of there, I started to um, continue to be shut down. I just, because, you know, you don't get over the community talking. They they don't stop. (laughs) 
you know, and I mean, I could go down the street and people were pulling down their pants, like, when do I get a turn? I mean, that's how I was being harassed. And so my mother, she finally said, okay, well, I'm going to go and let you stay with your aunt, who's my father's sister, who's the pastor um, and his wife. So I went there and I started to stay with them. And I remember the first couple of days, it was fine, you know, staying there with my aunt. She was nice to me. And she just let me know up front. She said, you know, your auntie, I got a mean streak. As long as you don't, you know, cross me or get on my nerves, you know, we'll be good. So I'm like, okay, bad. I just want to stay out the way. <laughs> I'm just happy to be, you know, in Alabama and no longer in Ohio. And so I felt, in a sense, I felt safer there than I did in Ohio because now I'm feeling like I don't have to go to court, I don't have to testify, I don't have to do any of these things, and they shouldn't hurt my mom or shoot up our house. And so I started to live with that aunt who was um, physically abusive, (laughs) and um, she had a condition that they just called OCD, and she couldn't stand anything out of order, anything out of place, but she doesn't do the work herself. You have to do the work. So I started to have to get up at 2, 3 in the morning, clean, and do all these things, and I just, like, pretty much became like a maid. And people were teasing me, calling me Cinderella. Like, every time they saw me, I had to, I had a broom in my hand. <laughs> so, and then as she got more intense, it was like when things were out of place, you know, you could you could get beat for it. You know, you could... Because it went beyond being spanked, it was it was beating. Because she could take things and break it over your head. So it was kind of, she was kind of vicious. <laughs> and um, the community knew about it. They just considered, you know, oh, she's just crazy. That's how she's always been. But you know, the people who were in the house with her were suffering. That's right. And so right now, um, she's even separated, you know, from her husband because of spousal abuse. Because she was actually abusing him too. And so once she had about, she had a two-bedroom house, and she had about four or five males staying there with her because she had her own three sons, and then she was kind of like the house that, you know, everybody goes to when you can't go back to your own house or if you went out to the club and your wife won't let you in, you could just go there and sleep. So it was kind of a house like that. Mm Mm-hmm. And so then, to make a long story short, my abuse started all over again. And when I um, when I started getting abused there, it started with one person, I think, within the, the second week, it was two, and before I knew it, it was out of hand. And so sometimes I could get abused by two or three people in one day. And so I remember going to school for seventh grade, Still not really knowing what was happening to me, I, I just I was still so ignorant of what was going on. Like I know this was going on, I know I didn't like this, but it was like I had no fight. And so one of those um, cousins turned me on to alcohol and drugs, and that was how I started to cope with it. And probably by the time I was thirteen, I probably could out drink men. Because I mean that's just how I coped with um that's how I coped with the abuse. And I remember feeling like 
sometimes praying so hard, God, please don't let them see me. And, you know, praying hard to I just was out of myself. And then it's like you could feel that hand coming under the cover and it would just take you back out of your world. So, um, and then I, I became very confused because I was being molested by so many different people and they all had different personalities. So it was like for this one you had to be this way and for this one you had to be this way. So it taught me how to basically kind of stay neutral if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I just kind of, you know, I could blank out. Like I could be washing dishes and one could come up behind you and he could pull your skirt up and he could molest you. And I learned how to continue washing dishes, you know, without even, you know, right. paying him any attention. But then you had those who wanted you to engage. And to me, that was like the worst because now I have to actually acknowledge what you're doing and I have to pay attention. So you, so I had to learn how to be there without being there. Mm-hmm. And so even though all of these were my survival skills, when I finally got out of that house and I, I ended up running away at 15 because, I mean, it just got so bad. It was out of control. I just no longer had any control. So it when it got that bad, and I didn't know this, but my mother told me later, she said, well, one of them called me and told me I needed to get you out of the house. But they didn't tell her it was because of the sexual abuse as well. They just basically told her about the physical abuse. and so when she, because when she kept sending for me, my aunt would not let me come home. She kept making up reasons that I just couldn't come back. And I was torn because I didn't want to go back because I didn't want to face what happened in Ohio. So, and I didn't want them to shoot up my mother's house. So I stayed longer than I had to because I really just did, I was trying to protect them. But then as I got about 15, I was thinking, well, it's been about three years ago. I look different. Maybe they won't really know who I am. And so I went back to Ohio. <laughs> and mm-hmm. and from there, it started um, again. I was going to school. And I, I remember, because I remember feeling this freedom when I got to Ohio. And I remember thinking things would be different. You know, and maybe even my mother has forgotten about things that happen, you know, because so, she don't really look at me like, you know, with this shame anymore. But I remember feeling this freedom and, like, things were different. And then I was getting off the school bus one day, and there was a gang that lived maybe two houses down from us, and they started just saying stuff, talking under my clothes, just kind of harassing me. And so I told my stepdad about it. So he started walking me to school, to the school bus every day. But then he got put on swing shift, so he could no longer walk me. And I remember one day coming home from school, I just kind of looked back and I saw one of the men. I, he was just, just out, out of my peripheral vision. It was like I just knew he was after me, like I could just see it. And so even though he was looking straight up in the sky, <laughs> And walking like he wasn't paying me any attention, it's just like a feeling I had. I knew it. And so I just started walking really fast. And I don't know if I was walking really fast or maybe my brain was moving faster than I was walking. But the next thing I knew, I remember he caught me by the arm and he was like, come here and let me holler at you. And I was like, oh, God, I'm caught. And he pulled me back behind the house because their houses was like 
maybe three or four houses down from ours. And he pulled me back from there with the clubhouse back there. And basically, to make a long story short, he threatened to hit me in the head with a metal pipe. And, you know, he attacked me. And I remember putting my clothes on and coming home and walking in the house and acting like nothing happened. And so I came in, I act like nothing happened. And then about three or four days later, he came to my house knocking on the door. He was like, I know you in there because my mother worked that night. And my father, my stepdad was on swing shift. And so I'm like, okay, well, I don't have a choice. I got to let him in. And so I let him in. And, you know, he attacked me. He did that about two separate nights. He did that. And I had a little brother, so I would try to be real quiet so my little brother wouldn't, you know, my little brother wouldn't hear anything. And so... Then he got bold enough that him and some other gang members one day when I was coming down the street, they were trying to force me to go with them. And this time I'm just really afraid because there's so many, and I'm just like, no. And I remember just being like, okay, they're going to kill me. I'm caught. And I don't know what happened, but my mother pulled up out of nowhere. She just pulled up. And she was like, what y'all doing to my daughter? You got to let my daughter go. And I, I started begging my mom, like, Mom, just let me go with him. I'll be right back. <laughs> and I, I I was like, it'll be okay because I'm thinking, if I don't go, they might shoot up our house. Or, you know, this is a game. We can't fight them. And my mother, she just stood them off. She really stood them off, and they let me go. And I was just sitting there like, I was so afraid of these people like this. And when my mom got done and had the phone trying to call the police, they were literally, they let me go. Mm-hmm. And they never bothered me again. So um, so I'm going to go on to, so this is all of the abuse from my childhood. So as I grow up, um, I get into all kinds of abusive relationships. My self-esteem is very low. Um, I was diagnosed with a multiple personality disorder and with that explained why I could pretty much I had to be different people mm-hmm. because I didn't I didn't know who I was. Like everybody made decisions for me and you know, like being in the house with my aunt, you know, they told you when you could eat, that you know, when you could go to sleep. So it was I wasn't even really able to go to the bathroom unless I felt like I was released by them or they were done with me for the day. And so I carried all of that into my adulthood without even realizing it. So even though I escaped the house and even though I escaped the abuse, I still lived it out every day in my mind. And I still woke up taking showers. I still woke up feeling dirty. I still woke up scrubbing myself. I still was really too ashamed to make eye contact with people or let people get close to me because I thought that they would see, you know, me or, the, you know, because to me I was the abuse, you know, so I didn't know how to um, separate the two. <laughs> so for me, all of this stuff was happening to me because I, I was this bad person and I was just this cursed person. So it was just all my fault. And I remember... Like, uh, you know, when I finally got into a, what I call a real relationship, which I still didn't, he didn't really know me, but he got to spend more time with me than other people. And so um, 
I remember always having to be drunk before we could have sex. And I remember one time he was so angry with me because I told him I just couldn't do it and I wasn't drunk. <laughs> and he just thought that was just um, me having something against him. And it wasn't, you know, because and I wasn't ready to talk to him about what happened to me. And I found out that um, I was pregnant. And I cried, I cried, I said, because this child's going to be messed up like me. They're going to be cursed. <laughs> and so I was talking to him. I said, right, we got to have some abortion, you know, because, you know, he didn't understand. But I thought that, oh, God, this is the worst thing ever. He's going to be like me. This It's going to be terrible. Because at this time, I'm still thinking I'm the problem. Mm-hmm. And so he didn't follow through with his part of the abortion. He said, I can't go through with that. Which pretty much when I got, when I found out I was way too far to have an abortion. So when I found out, I was already five months pregnant. Okay, yeah. And which was a miracle because, you know, after the damage done to me when I was a little girl, I, I was told I would never have any children. Right. So I definitely think, didn't think I could have any. So um, from there, I'm like, okay, I got to start changing my life. I can't drink. I, I got to change, right. you know. So, yeah. and I have no idea how to do it. And I remember just struggling, like trying to, like I got to be good now. That's what I kept thinking, like, because I, I got to have the baby, so now what I'm going to do? Mm-hmm. And I remember mm-hmm. trying to fight to change my life. But now I'm in this place where we don't have a rehab for alcoholics. We don't have a rehab for people doing drugs. We don't have any of these resources. So now it's like, what do I do? So I ended up landing this job with the Medicaid agency. And I would be going to work, but I was struggling. And, you know, because sometimes I could do good. I could not drink. I could not smoke. And then a couple of days I fall off, you know. And... But I was a hard worker. I worked very hard when I get there. And I remember one of the the, the women who was supervising me, she kind of called me to the side and she kept saying, you know, I'm just noticing some things about you. Are you troubled about something? And I'm like, no. You know, so I remember going home thinking, okay, I got to tighten up. I got to do better. I can't let, you know, this mm-hmm. stuff follow me. Right. So I got to do better at work. Yeah. <laughs> So I started to do that, and then um, she just still kept sometimes giving me that look, or she was just kind of like she was studying me. And so I'm really trying to put on a super happy face now because I don't want her to think, you know, something is wrong with me, and I definitely don't want to lose my job. And so one day she just came up to me and she said, you know, I just really would like to talk to you and really would like to pray with you. And I'm thinking, okay. <laughs> so she did that, and afterwards we kind of became close. I started to trust her. And one day um, I wrote her a letter, and I didn't even realize before I knew it, I just started pouring out about the abuse. So even though I thought I was burying it, <laughs> it, it was still just at the, you know, it was just, boiling over inside of me. And before I knew it, I just wrote her a letter. And I remember she read the letter in front of me. And I remember being so ashamed because I was so scared of what her reaction was going to be. 
that I didn't know whether to get up and leave the building and never come back. But for some reason, I just said, okay, I, I, I need some help. And I didn't even say in the letter, I, didn't, I did not use the word rape or molest, because like I said, at this time, I don't really even understand this is, you know, <laughs> what's going on with me. And she looked at the letter, and she cried, and she got up, and she hugged me, and I was shocked because I just wasn't used to that reaction. And I remember being so shocked, and she said, I would like to take you, you know, to my church. And she said, I want you to meet my pastor. And she was like, you know, she just started ministering to me about it. Mm -hmm. And so I remember when we went to meet her pastor, I remember almost fainting at the thought of her giving him my letter. (laughs) But she she held my hand, Mm -hmm. and they were really comforting to me. They prayed for me. They were really comforting. And I started attending church real heavy, and the more I got in church, you know, I started to, you know, just believe, hey, God says I'm this, God says I'm that, and I'm I'm able to deal with fornicating and drinking and smoking and all these external habits, but I'm still not dealing with, you know, the fact that I've been raped or molested. All of this pain is still there. Right. And there were times when um, people could, Testify. People would get up and preach, and they and I would go in the bathroom and I would cry and I would say, God, well, what about me? You know, you, you know, these people they're talking about all this stuff, but why is nobody speaking to what happened to me? I mean, do you even care? So that was a question that lingered because I wasn't hearing about rape or molestation in church. There was no comforting word that the preacher was preaching about it. So it made me feel even more out there. (laughs) And so even though I started trying to be this really good church Christian and and get in religion and get in ministry and do all that, I was still harboring all of this pain. The only difference now is you can't fornicate, drink, and smoke, so you can't medicate. You can't Mm self-medicate. So now I'm dealing with you know, so I started to deal with the eating disorder. It came to the forefront. I had it, you know, back as a teen, but it came to the forefront even more because it was something I could get away with a little more. Mm-hmm. So even though I'm going to church and I'm in ministry, I'm still struggling. <laughs> so I'm still, you know, I still hate myself. I still have this self-hatred. I'm still looking in the mirror telling myself I hate you. And even though I'm looking at other people saying, God loves you with an everlasting love, I'm looking at myself saying, I just hate you. And, God, why did did you curse me? And so I started to do a – so as we started to – I came out about my story more and more, and as we started to talk about, you know, molestation and stuff like that, I kind of went to – I started doing a support group in my house. And, you know, my ministry was around getting people to actually acknowledge and admit, you know, what had happened to them because I didn't want them to be ignorant like I was. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and I know the hardest step for me was to actually acknowledge and accept what happened to me. And so that's, that's where, kind of where, what our support group was about. And even though it was very, very effective, but but within time, I had moved to a place where 
I was like, okay, well, I've done this, I've done that, now what? You know, so I was kind of in that place, but at the same time, I was still going on, doing the support group, you know, doing it around, you know, the um, we, we even got um, Sexual Assault Awareness Month raised in our city, and so it was very hard. We had a radio show, we were talking about it, even though people were saying, oh, you shouldn't talk about that, so we went through a lot of scrutiny mm-hmm. <laughs> as well, and um, I remember um, I had a friend, he called me, and I hadn't seen him in a long time, and he asked, could he come by, and I'll never forget, that was Thanksgiving, he was in the city, and I said, well, sure, you know, so he came by, and we was talking, and basically, to make a long story short, he attacked me, he raped me, and I couldn't believe coming from him, somebody who was you know, who was, he was always kind of like a mentor. So I just couldn't, you know, and I remember when it happened, I remember being stunned. So even though I'm out here and I'm doing support groups and I'm talking to people about, um, you know, coming forward and no means no, and, and I'm working with people in ministry that's teaching the same thing, mm-hmm. when it happened to me, I said, this time I I froze up, and I immediately said, okay, I'm not going to be quiet. So I immediately called one of my friends, and then she called one who was my um, co-pastor at the time, who was a female. And immediately I heard her saying on the phone, no, it's not raping my book because you let them in. And if you let them in the house, nobody raped you. You know, she was just going on and on, and I remember being so devastated yeah. that I just, I no longer wanted to do do that ministry because I felt like if I'm working with the same people and we're telling these people this, and when it came to this, they treated me the same oh. as I was treated by people. So I realized that in the church, it was still the same. There was no more help in the church than it was when, you know, I was a little girl. They had the same denial. They even told me, don't go to the hospital because, you know, you're in ministry now, and if you go to the hospital, everybody's going to be talking about it and everybody's going to be in your business. And so, but because the way he attacked me, he he actually physically attacked me on top of it, so I didn't have a choice but to go to the doctor. So I ended up going to my doctor, and he was just like, please let me prosecute this guy. Please let me just, please, please. He was like, look at you. And I finally listened to him, and he sent me over to the crisis center, and I went to the crisis center, and um, that just was not, that didn't go so well because she was just basically like, if you don't give me the name of the person, we can't help you. And at this time, I'm in shock, so I thought she would have been more comforting. I thought that, you know, but at this time, I'm just, I'm shocked. Like, I can't, you know, <laughs> believe, you know, this happened. So um, from there, I just kind of fell off. It just became a a struggle. Like, I got really depressed. I no longer wanted to do the conferences. It just became you know, like a a burden. Like I didn't even want to hear the word rape. I didn't want to hear about sexual assault. 
I didn't look up anything about it. I didn't want to read anything about it. I didn't want no help. I just wanted to move on with my life, and I just wanted that to be away from me. And I lived like that for maybe about a good year, and then all of a sudden um, some police showed up on my job one day, and I found out now my child has been assaulted. And so now I have to deal with my child has been assaulted. And so now that's bringing back everything on me. And I remember having to face the fullness of the music that, okay, now you can't live in denial anymore. You can't hide from what happened to you. You can't hide from what happened to your child. You got to face this. And you got to, so either you can shut down and keep running, because clearly we see that every city that I had been to, it wasn't going anywhere. It It just either kept happening or the issues from what had happened in the past kept coming back up. So I realized that, and I told myself that I would not allow my child to suffer like I did. So even though I was getting him the full help, you know, everything, every resource that I could find, you know, I got for him. <laughs> and so then I said, now you have to do that for yourself. Uh. My goodness. Latia, I'm just here taking in your story. And I want to just first of all say thank you so much for sharing your story in the way that you have. I really wanted to create a space today where, um, you know, I'm kind of doing a series and highlighting, you know, survivor stories this month. And really wanting people to get a chance to hear the journey that somebody goes on. And you have taken us on that journey with you through so many things that I wish you had never, ever had to experience. And yet you find yourself here today able to talk about this experience with such uh, groundedness and clarity and strength and wisdom. What's shifted for you? Can you say a little bit about from that moment of no more hiding out, no more denial, to where you are here telling your story? Can you say a little bit about that part of your journey and and what happened for you to help make that possible for you today? Well, for me, you know, after the situation with my child, I started to think back on myself and my journey and how helpless I felt and um, and how even the time I tried to reach out, you know, uh, 10%, I wasn't met with anything, you know, because that door was shut. And I don't fault my mother for that because my mother was uh, also abused as a child. And she didn't know how to, you know, I, you know, the journey that I'm on now has helped my mother. Wow. So I've, I've also learned, you know, that a lot of people don't know how to handle this. They don't know how to react to it. So it's easier to blame the victim because they don't know how to deal with it. Right. And so I remember, and I think I, I might have left this part out, one of the, uh, after my uncle was molesting me, he was also molesting a female cousin of mine who, who in turn started to molest me. And I remember 
when it all came out, she denied it. I remember being so angry with her because at that time I didn't understand, you know, everything about, you know, how, you know, shame silences people. And when she came back talking to me years later, my heart was more open to her. But for me, you know, when I saw that situation with my son, I saw him in that state of helplessness like I was. And he was just like balled up on the floor and he was tormented. And I just said, no, you know, I'm not going to... I'm going to do everything I can because I don't want him to have to go through. He's going to have every resource because one of the worst things that I I thought about was to go through all of this and not even know what you're going through. You know, just being too, just being ignorant of it. So you can't even put words to what's happening to you. You can't even really describe it. So for me, that that was. the turning point for me, it was like I, I, I started to see things about myself that I, I really didn't like, that I was paranoid. Like my son, from the time he was, and I thought I was being protected. So from the time he started going to um, daycare, you know, I started teaching him. that When he would come in the house, I would say, did anybody touch you? Did anybody pull your pants down? I would ask him those questions. And by the time he was like five, he was just walking the door and automatically said, nobody touch me, Mommy. Nobody pulled down my pants, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was like I had this pair. I just I couldn't stand the thought of nobody else having to keep him. So it was like a fear that I had that I just couldn't. So I thought I was just protecting him with everything I had. And I remember feeling like, okay, so now that my child has been molested right under my nose from a person who was just picking him up from school and bringing him to my job, you know, bringing him to me, you know, one of his loved ones, and I'm saying, okay, so now I I see that I can't even protect him like I thought I could. Mm -hmm. So I started to feel like this failure which brought up even more of my own stuff. And so I kept saying, I can't help him because I haven't dealt with my own stuff. Mm -hmm. I have a fear of taking him to the counselor because I haven't dealt with my own stuff because I don't want the counselor to talk to me, and I'm still too ashamed to go to a counselor, so I'm not going to take him. And so, but it was seeing him in all of that pain, I said, no, I have to push past you know, my feelings about this because, you know, you know, dealing with him brought me out of denial with my own stuff. <laughs> wow. So it was like yeah. you, you can't you can't sit and say, continue to say, no, that didn't happen or it wasn't that bad when you're looking at your child who's almost suicidal. <laughs> right, right. My gosh. So, you know, what I um, I always wish that there were something else that would be a turning point. But in so many ways, you know, that moment being so critical for you and that opening the door to you to set forward and, and to start your healing journey and start getting that support and care for you and guidance um, to really help you let go of that shame and those beliefs and, and to move forward and and now, you know, you're beginning to, um, you know, move back into creating your conferences and, and to get back mm-hmm. to the work that you mm-hmm. were so meant 
to do. And I'm so excited about that for you, Latia. And I just can't um I can't wait to see what this next, you know, stage of your life brings. And you know, I know for those of you listening to this podcast that there has been something along the way in Latia's story that has resonated with you if you're a survivor of abuse. And so I know that it's going to have uh, such a huge impact and, and really be, um, uh, I, I hope, bring, bring you know, hope and awareness to, to those of you who are listening tonight that whatever your journey is, uh, there is a way through um, to the other side where you can reclaim, you know, who you are, reclaim your life, and and get back to doing the things that you really want to be doing. <laughs> yes. So, um, Latia, is there anything else that you'd like? Any final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners tonight? Yes, I just wanted to say that I, I found that one of the biggest tools that I could find was to educate myself. And I thank God for programs like yours because, you know, getting on the Internet and and just think maybe 20 years ago we didn't really have Internet to, you know, to search and find. But now it's right at your fingertips. And it was so many stories out there. And I was shocked to find that there were so many resources, you know, so even if you if even if you don't have the um even if you don't have the strength to just go and talk to a person, you know, you can go to blogs, you can just do an anonymous post. And you know, it can get you to a place where, you know, you will reach out for help. Because I was so shut down from reaching out from help because like I said, in our family that's just something when you start talking about counselors and stuff like that you know, that's just not, they feel like that's not the norm. So that was just kind of embarrassing. But, you know, so for me, I wouldn't read about it. I wouldn't look up anything. I wanted nothing to do with it. And I know there's a lot of people out there who feel the same way. But I promise you, it was like the best step I ever made in my life because I was tired of getting to a point, but this was still there. Because it doesn't go away. It's just, you know, you can bury it, but it's still coming back up. So it was showing up in all kinds of areas in my life, and I had no idea that behaviors that I was still engaging in was connected to what I've been through. Right. And, and for example, I had a, you know, I, would, I could be talking to someone, and I would really have to go to the bathroom, and I would not release myself to go to the bathroom. I wouldn't dare put up my hand and interrupt them and say, oh, excuse me, I'll be right back, because I didn't even feel like I had the power to do that. Right. And so I never knew that was connected to me being abused. Right. So, yeah. so, so I learned that, you know, you know, as I started to research and read about it and just find resources to help myself, I found that, you know, wow, this is this is um this is this is normal. All of these things behaviors I thought I had that wasn't even normal, this is normal for a person who's been through abuse. Yeah. So, you know, so they created like this normal platform <laughs> and I'm like, Oh wow and that just kind of helped me to be able to push through and and continue to get help. And I also wanna say 
you know, just like even with me going through the Beyond Survivor program, you know, I feel like once you start to let go of the negative beliefs about yourself, and I feel like you will start to invest in yourself. So I feel I felt like that was an investment for me, you know. So I feel like you should make the investment in yourself so that you could be able to move forward in your life because we deserve it. Mm-hmm. I second that. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really beautiful. It's been such an honor, you know, walking alongside you, Latia, and working with you in the program and seeing all of those amazing shifts and just the growth and change, um, you know, that you experienced in that time and, you know, continuing on supporting you and and building this next um, stage out and, you know, stepping into this next vision that you have for your life. I'm just so proud of you. I'm so happy for you. And it's um, it's such a testament to the enduring spirit that we have and the possibility that is available for all of us to heal from really terrible, shitty things that should have never, ever happened, Um, but that we can turn the page and move forward um, in our lives. So you are just a powerhouse. Like I said at the beginning, a powerhouse of a woman, and I just am so grateful to know you and um, to have had you here, and just thank you, thank you, thank you so much for sharing your story um, tonight. You just, you did so great. <laughs> oh, thank you, oh, and thank gosh. you for having me. <laughs> yeah. So for all those of you who are listening, um, feel free to reach out to Latia at admin at familyaffairscenter.org. Or you can learn more at familyaffairscenter.org. Just go to the website and check that out. And definitely be sure to check out Latia Parker's books. Uh, There's Where Can I Take My Shame and Rebuilding the Ruins. Um, And can people get those on Amazon? How's the best place for them to find your work? Yes, the books will be available on Amazon as of April 1st. So Where Can I Take My Shame? We revamped it. And um, Rebuilding the Ruins will be being released for the first time um, April the 1st. So they will be available on Amazon. Okay, so make a note. Mark your calendars, everyone, because it will be a couple of, you know, uh, about a week and a half or so from today Mm -hmm. when um, the books will be available. So make sure you go and check those out. And um, I just want to thank all of you listening for tuning in and uh, joining us. And don't forget to visit rachelgrantcoaching.com as well to learn more about sexual abuse recovery coaching and explore the other resources that are available on the site. And please be sure to subscribe to this podcast because we have so much more to share. So until next time, take good care of you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.